This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. Today, we are in week two of our new series, It's Not Over. And in the the weeks after Easter, we're exploring how the resurrection of Jesus not only is something that is a historical reality, something that, that happened, but we also believe it's something that is happening right now and something that will happen in the future. The resurrection of Jesus means that he covers our past, he covers our present, and he covers our future. We started last week by exploring the idea of if we can trust Jesus with forever, if we can believe that after we die, we will live with him, then we can trust him with right now, with whatever we face. This morning, we're going to look at the story of Peter in John chapter 21, where Jesus restores him after Peter denies Jesus on the night of his arrest. And what we're going to see this morning is how even in the face of our failure, it's not over. That Jesus comes to us in the, the darkness of our sin and not just, he doesn't just forgive us, but he brings us back into a new life and lays a new path, a new future out in front of us. And I think if we all had uh, a couple moments to reflect this morning, we could think of ways that we have probably failed in the last week. Uh, maybe some of you, you spent the whole week by yourself or uh, you're just particularly good. So you might have to stretch back to a month or so. Uh, I, I know for many of our moms, if you, if you're coming to that nerf night tonight, um, if we talk to you after the nerf night, most likely, uh, you would have some confessions of sin and anger and other things that you felt. I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe some of you moms are different, but I've never seen a woman react, uh, with a happy heart to her son shooting her with a nerf gun. Um, but, but that does not change how delightful it is to watch that happen. Right. I mean, there's a reason in my house we have two sons, but there are always three boys hiding to shoot mom with a Nerf gun. Um, And uh, I'll be like, I'll take the first one. Then you guys light her up. And she just she loves it. I mean, it's really drawn us closer together as a family. Would highly recommend it. Um, but yeah, so some of you moms tonight, if we talk to you about failure, you're going to be like, yeah, my, you know, the Nerf night, the time my kid shot me with a gun and I got mad and threw mine and hit his friend. Like it's, you know, they'll just be, there's all this potential here. And I really hope we have some video, but, um, but, but we all fail, right? We get that. We're going to fail and, and we're going to fail repeatedly. Even after we experience the power of Jesus in our lives, we still struggle with temptation. There are still times, um, that, that we don't behave or act as we want to act. And so what the story of Peter and Jesus in John 21 shows us is that even when we've screwed up in, in really spectacular fashion, Jesus still comes to us and, and he renews us, he restores us, and he sets us on a new path, a new road towards a new future. To really understand, though, the, the story that we're going to read in John 21, we have to back up to John chapter 13. Now, in John chapter 13, um, John begins to tell us the story of what we call Good Friday, when Jesus is arrested and when he's crucified. So if you back all the way up to John chapter 13, Jesus is preparing the disciples for what is about to happen. And and we call this the Last Supper. He's gathered them all together and he's doing his best to explain to them, guys, this is what's about to happen. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to be separated from you. And we see from their reaction that they don't entirely understand what's going on. And so if you look in John chapter 13, verse 36, you see Jesus telling the disciples, he says, where I'm going You cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? 
Truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Now, Peter, we know from from the way he's described in the Gospels and, and even in the book of Acts, Peter is a fairly stubborn person. Right, like many of us are. In, in my family, I'm incredibly stubborn. I married an incredibly stubborn woman. We have three stubborn children. Uh, when we used to have a dog, it was stubborn. Just like every, it just, it filters through our house. If you come over, you'll probably become stubborn. It's just the, the way it works. And so what you know, if you're a stubborn person or you live with stubborn people, is that when somebody tells a stubborn person, you can't do this, what they hear is, watch me try. You know, like, so if my wife comes to me and says, man, I've been working, trying to open this jar. Uh, I, I can't get it. I don't think you can either. Well, in my mind, I know we're about to have two outcomes. I'm going to open that jar or I'm going to break my wrist. Uh, and, and there's no other alternative there. The, the beauty of it is it works the other way too. Like Angie's incredibly stubborn. And so all I have to do is tell her sh- she can't do something and I know she's going to try it. You know, so, so this works again. She's gone. So just between me and my close friends today, uh, you know, my, my sixth grader, he'll come home with some math homework at times. And, uh, I look at it and I, I might as well be reading Chinese. It's like, I don't, I don't know. I don't get this. And so what I've learned is to tell Angie, like, Connor's got some homework. Honestly, it's really hard. I don't know if you can even do it. And all she hears is like, Oh, I can do that. Sixth grade math. I can do that. Get it. Connor, get over here right now. And so I then get to go play with the other two kids while mom and Connor fight at the table over sixth grade math. And it's kind of a glorious experience, uh, for me, not for her. But you know that feeling. If you're stubborn and someone says you can't, you hear, why not? I'm going to try. I'm going to do it. And this is exactly what happens to Peter. Now think of where Peter is at this point in his life. He has given up everything to follow Jesus. He's abandoned his career. He's walked away from his family. He is fully devoted to Jesus. Remember, it's, it's Peter who, when the disciples are out in the middle of the sea and there's a big storm and they see Jesus walking on the water, it's Peter who jumps out of the boat in the storm and walks towards Jesus. It's Peter who's always there and he's ready to go. It's Peter who's acknowledged, you are the son of God. You are the Messiah. We've left everything to follow you. Where else would we go? And so when Jesus tells him at the last supper, where I'm about to go, you cannot follow me. Peter says, yes, I can. I'm going to do it. Not only will I follow you, I will die for you. See, Peter reacts the way that that many of us do in our pursuit of Jesus. We think we're going to do it by our own power and by our own strength. But our selfish pursuit of Jesus, our, our desire to say, I'm going to do this for you through my own strength, normally just leads us into a bigger mess. Because Jesus doesn't come to teach us to be more reliant on ourselves. He comes to teach us to be completely reliant on God. So after the Last Supper, Jesus gathers the disciples and they go to the the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus is going to pray. This is where you find the story of Jesus praying and asking God if there's any way possible, if there's any other course of action, please take it and let me get out of this. But not my will, let your will be done. Well, Peter, when they leave, he decides he's going to prove himself. So Peter's a fisherman by training, but on this night when they go to the garden, he straps a sword on his side. This isn't part of his everyday wear. This is Peter preparing to die for Jesus. Right? He knows there's the possibility of violence, the possibility that others will come, and he's going to be the one who steps up and intervenes. He's going to prove to Jesus and to the other disciples that he loves Jesus the most. He's the most committed. He'll lay down his life for him. 
So as you begin to read the, the story in John 18 of what happens, the, the soldiers come and they show up with some of the other religious leaders. And it says in verse 10, Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, Put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? See, Peter screws up. He wants to prove himself, but he just makes things worse. Luke tells us that Jesus reaches out and he heals the servant's ear, which is probably the, the thing that saves Peter from being arrested himself. You know, what's also interesting is that Peter, when the soldiers come, Peter chooses to go after the high priest's servant, right? Like, I mean, he might be stubborn, but he's not dumb. Like, I'm not going to go after the detachment of soldiers. I'm going to sneak around behind, get that guy on the ear. He doesn't have any, you know, he's just carrying some stuff. Like, even in his effort to prove himself, there's still this underlying weakness and selfishness and self-preservation that's there. Jesus rebukes him and tells him, no, 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 you're, you're, you're trying to go for an admirable goal. You're trying to follow me. You're trying to love me. But not only are you doing it the wrong way, you're getting in the way of what God is trying to accomplish. You've probably had a, a moment in your life like that where you were convinced you were pursuing a goal and you designed the way you were going to reach that goal, and later down the road, you realized that your entire pursuit had actually been taking you farther away from the goal you're trying to reach. And when, when I was in high school, my sophomore year of high school, I think I was probably like 6'1 and about 145, 150 pounds, like just string bean, and all I wanted to do in life was gain weight and have muscles like the football players that I lifted weights with. And so uh, this was my goal. I would eat everything as much as I could. I would, I would lift weights. I would do everything that I could, and nothing worked, right? Like it was just still string bean, string bean, string bean. Well, somewhere along the way, I think it was one of my coaches told me, he said, Chris, when I was your age, I wanted to gain weight. You need to gain weight. You're too skinny. Uh, so what you need to do is you need to drink a half a gallon of milk a day. That's what I did, and then I gained weight and I built muscle. I'm oh great. I like milk. I love Oreos. So I can do that. You know, so I would from high school through college into grad school, every morning would start with one, if not two big glasses of milk. When I got home in the evening, I'd have another one. I'd usually before I went to bed at night, have another glass of milk with about, you know, one row of Oreos. It was just a, it was the glory days of the high metabolism, right? Some of you are there right now. You just enjoy it. Uh, some of you are not, and now you want Oreos, but you know it's not a good idea because they're just going to stay forever. Um, but so, so I do this all through high school, through college, through grad school. And I remember in grad school reading an article, and it was probably published by the, you know, the dairy farmers of America, but uh, it, it said that drinking milk in a few studies had been shown to increase your metabolism and help you keep weight off. I just thought, like at this point, it's like seven years that I've been doing this, and I like milk, but I don't like it that much. And, and it's this realization of like, I'm an idiot. You know, like I, I took this one guy's advice and I never bothered to look into it beyond that. I just assumed, well, he's kind of old and fat, so he must know what he's talking about. And then it, it didn't work at all for me. This is exactly what happens to Peter here. He has a goal in mind. He's going to stick with Jesus no matter what happens. But his pursuit of the goal not only doesn't, doesn't achieve it, but it's taking him farther away. Again, Jesus comes to make us reliant on God to be the way by which his power, his spirit can live in us. And Peter is striving to show his devotion entirely through his own power. And it's not, not bad enough that, he, that he's kind of in the way in the garden, but it gets worse after that. 
So Jesus is arrested. They take him to the high priest, and uh, Peter's able to kind of get in the courtyard to observe what's going on there. And this is where we see the story of Peter's denials of Jesus. Right, where, where Peter has moved from, I will die for you, I will cut that guy for you, to suddenly he's standing around a fire in the high priest's courtyard, surrounded by the servants of the high priest, and somebody says to him, aren't you one of his disciples? He says, no, 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 I'm not. And someone else says, no, you are, you're one of them, I, I know you're one of them. He says, I'm, I'm not, I'm not one of them. The third time somebody says, I saw you in the garden. Which is, I mean, like Peter's caught pretty red-handed because if you're going to remember anyone from the garden, you're going to remember the dude who cut somebody's ear off, right? Like it's hard to blend into the background when, no, I remember you cut off the guy's ear, Jesus healed the ear, Jesus rebuked you, you kind of skulked into the background, I know it was you. Peter's like, nope, no, it wasn't me. Was not me. One of the other gospel accounts tells us that at that third denial, Peter starts to call down curses on himself, on everybody else. He is adamant. This did not happen. It's a painful moment for him. And in just a very short time, something's changed in Peter's heart. He's moved from, I will die for him, to being unable to say that he knows him. And the only thing worse than that failure is that it happens in public. One of the other disciples is there. Jesus is there. The servants are there. And, and you, many of you, you've had that experience like I have of, of not only have you failed, but you've failed in ways that others get to appreciate your failure with you. All right? Peter has a much more serious um, experience of what you felt the time that you told your kids, I'm sorry I yelled at you. It will never happen again. I will never raise my voice in anger at you guys again. And then you absolutely lost your mind in the front yard in front of the neighbors and God and everybody else, right? This is what happens when you tell your spouse, I will never speak to you that way again. And then then those words are coming out of your mouth in front of other people before you even realize what's going on. This is what happens when you, you tell your boss or your supervisor, I'm so sorry I'm late. This will never happen again. I will set three alarms to make sure I'm here on time. And then you're late and you're fired in front of everybody. It's that public failure that makes it that much more painful. right? It's you bringing home the new boyfriend or girlfriend and announcing to your family, this is the one. It's going to be different than all of the others. And then you wreck that just like you have all the other ones. This is the moment of the, the college student who tells their parents, mom and dad, thanks for your grace. This semester, I'm really going to buckle down and get after it. And then that academic probation letter comes in the mail and you're like, eh, maybe next semester. You know, we, we've had these moments and we've had them in more serious and darker ways too, where we've promised ourselves, we've promised our family, our friends, God, our church. We've said, hey, this addiction is over. I'm never going down. I'm never drinking that. I'm never using that. I'm never looking at that. I'm never engaging in these behaviors again, only to go deeper and darker and be publicly exposed as the one who cannot break this cycle. See, in those moments of public failure are just the worst. When Luke tells us the story of Peter's betrayal, he includes a, an interesting interaction at the end between Peter and Jesus. In Luke chapter 22, verse 61, it says that after the, the rooster crowed, after the third denial, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Now, when your world comes crashing down on you, when the, the full weight of your mistakes is made visible to you and to others, it's, it's really an awful experience. 
If you've ever had that moment where you look in the eyes of the person you lied to, if you've had that moment where you're promising your kids this will never happen again and you can see in their eyes that they doubt you, if you've ever had to be the one going to your spouse saying, I'm so sorry I broke your trust, it will never happen again, and you can see they have absolutely no reason to believe you, then you know what Peter felt. Even if you didn't weep like he wept, you know what it is to have your heart filled with mourning and bitterness. To go through those thoughts of why do I keep doing the same stupid stuff? Why do I keep hurting the people that are closest to me? Why? What is wrong inside of me that I cannot stop, that I keep doing what I don't want to do? You feel like there's no hope. You're never going to change. And for Peter in this moment, it feels completely final. Jesus goes from the courtyard to be abused, to be beaten. He's led to the hill where he's crucified. He dies and he's buried. And for Peter, there's no hope of fixing things. There's no possibility of his relationship being restored. Jesus is in the tomb, and Peter's lasting memory is going to be that look he gave him after the third denial. Those moments are the absolute worst, not just when it's exposed, but when you think your failure has led you past the point of redemption, to where no 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 restoration in that relationship is possible, where you've spoken the words that cannot be taken back where you've acted in ways that you can't change, where the child has moved out, the business is closed, the house has been foreclosed on, that you've went through the diagnosis and all the treatments and they said there's nothing left to do. Those moments of despair when you drive away from the cemetery and the one you loved is gone forever. Right When that cloud of depression has settled in, we know what it is to feel like Peter of just all that's left inside is mourning and bitterness because of our failures. And if that's where the story ends, Peter has an incredibly depressing life. But it's not. We read the story of Peter's failure in light of the resurrection. Right? One of the the beautiful things for us when we read the Gospels is all of these stories happen so long ago. When we start at the beginning, we know how it ends. But the truth of the Gospel is that you should read the story of your life the exact same way. That even though you're in the middle of it, and even though you're walking through the mess, you know how it ends. Because your story is the story of Jesus. And the story of Jesus is always a story of resurrection power, new life, new hope, and a path for the future. And so wherever you find yourself this morning, identifying with Peter in his failures, lost and hopeless, the message of the gospel to you is even when you fail, it's not over. There's still hope. There's still another day. There's still a brighter tomorrow. When books and letters end, they normally end with what the writer thinks is most important. So those of you who um, work, consider the way you send a work email where you're trying to to communicate something about a a specific project. You normally are going to end that email by reaffirming the most important thing that you've said in that message. Right, So maybe it's the project deadline, maybe it's the next steps that need to be taken, maybe you're going to use some bullet points, some bold letters, some underlining, some italics, but you're trying to make clear at the end of it, this is what matters. Well, we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four of them tell the story of Peter's failure, but Mark and John both end with an emphasis on the restoration of Peter. In Mark 16, Mark ends with a very simple statement where the angel appears to the women at the tomb and he says, go tell the disciples and Peter. 
right? Wanting him to know you're still part, you're still in. John goes into even more detail, and we're going to look at, at his story of restoration and, and see what it teaches us. But so in John 21, as he wraps up his gospel, this is the story of Jesus. This is his hope to convince the world of who Jesus is. And he finishes with three accounts of Jesus appearing to the disciples. The first account happens on Resurrection Sunday, right? What we would call Easter. So Jesus is resurrected on that morning, that evening, when the disciples are all gathered together eating dinner, he appears to them to show them that he is alive, that he has conquered death, that he's no longer in the grave, to confirm the testimony of the women, that the grave is empty. About a week later, he shows back up and he talks to Thomas because Thomas doesn't believe it. He wasn't there for the meal and he says, no, until I can touch him and see him and put my hands where the nails went, I'm I'm not going to believe he's resurrected. So Jesus shows up again, reveals himself to Thomas. Thomas touches him, he sees him. About a week after that, John tells us that the disciples go fishing. Now, Peter and some of the other disciples, this is what they do for a living. And so, you know, they've got to eat. They've got to do things. They're still kind of in this uncertain area of life where Jesus has come back to life, but he's not walking with them every day. He hasn't really told them what they're supposed to do. And so they just go out to the lake to go fish. So in John 21, it says they fished all night long. And they haven't caught anything. And as they're bringing the boat in in the morning, there's someone standing on the shore who hollers out to them, hey, have you guys caught anything? And they say, no. And he says, well, throw your nets on the other side. So they throw their nets on the other side, and they begin to haul in this big catch of fish. I mean, just just huge. And as they're doing that, one of the disciples in the boat has this kind of aha moment. And he looks at the shore, and he says, that's the Lord. That's Jesus. And Peter, I mean, just in his impulsive nature, it says that he gathers up his clothes, and he jumps in the water, and he swims to shore to see Jesus. Leaving the other, I mean, this is kind of typical of Peter's life. Like, hey, I'm out of here. You guys clean up the mess, right? So he, he runs in to see Jesus, leaves the other disciples to bring the boat in. And, and when they bring it in, Jesus tells them to bring over some of the fish. And he's built a fire there on the beach. And they sit down. They enjoy breakfast together. And after breakfast, with, with the context of the other disciples sitting around there with him, Jesus turns his attention to Peter. And he begins to speak to him. And this is a part of the story we know, but I really want us to consider what's being said and what it means for us. In John 21, verse 15, it says, When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Again, I want you to think about what's happening here. When Jesus, or when Peter denies Jesus, just uh, about three weeks before this happens, he is sitting around a fire at night, surrounded by the servants of the high priest. And on three different occasions, he denies Jesus. Three weeks later, in the morning, he's sitting around a fire with Jesus, surrounded by the other disciples. And on three different occasions, 
He professes his love for Jesus. Jesus asked him three times to affirm his love. It's like he's trying to, to put these two things in, in juxtaposition with each other and say, Peter, this is what you did. Three times around a fire at night, you, de- you denied me. You could not voice your love and commitment for me. And so now sitting around a fire in the morning, surrounded by your brothers, you are going to get the opportunity to put into words what you could not say on the night I was arrested. For every denial, there's a restoration. And Jesus welcomes Peter back in, but he doesn't just welcome him in and kind of want to make him feel bad about himself. Right of Like, hey, Peter, yeah, you can come back, but you're always going to be the one who denied me. You're always going to be the one who screwed up. But he welcomes him back in. He forgives him freely. He forgives him completely, and he gives him a job to do. He says, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, follow me. Your job is now to lead people who follow me. And as you read through the book of Acts, you see that Peter becomes the leader of the church. He's the one the other disciples look to, the one that they go to for advice, that they trust with the authority of leading the church through those first early days. Jesus saves him. He doesn't just forgive him and restore him, but he sets him on a new path with a brighter future, one that most likely is only possible because Peter has learned he cannot rely on himself. That left to his own devices, he will fail and deny Jesus. It's only through the restoring power of God in him that he can stand and follow him. And so as we consider that story, again, we know it, we're familiar with it. You've probably heard it several times before, but I, I want to spend our last few minutes together talking about what it means specifically for your failure. So think of the ways that you failed. Think of the sins that recur. Think of the things you can't get over. Think of the most shameful moments you've never told anyone about. And as you consider those, have that picture of Jesus inviting you saying, hey, come and sit and let's have this talk. And the talk is not a lecture. It's not a a righteous beatdown where he's just trying to say, I am such a good, loving father, and you're such a despicable, lowly person. I can't believe you do that, but I guess I'll give you one more shot. When Jesus forgives Peter, there's no lecture. There's just a welcome. There's just an embrace. There's just saying, hey, let's go. And the forgiveness Jesus offers to Peter is deep, and it's complete. Jesus could have just asked Peter one time, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Great, feed my sheep and follow me. But he does it once, and then twice, and then a third time. By the third time, it says that that Peter is hurt by it. Now, Now, where's that hurt coming from? Is he offended that Jesus doesn't believe him? Probably not. The hurt probably comes because he's remembering the last time he was questioned three times about Jesus. The hurt comes from Jesus digging way down deep into his soul. You see, we're tempted to come and just say, God, forgive me. Okay, he's done that. Now let me move on. But sometimes we need that experience like Peter has of let's sit by the fire with Jesus and let him pull back the curtains and let him dig way down deep into the hurt. I've been doing this long enough now that I know all of us have deep hurts, deep pain, deep shame over things that we've done. And the power of the gospel does not lie in God's ability to cover those things up, but the power of the gospel lies in God's ability to sow the grace of Christ so deep down in our heart that it removes those from the inside out. 
He doesn't come to give us the appearance of righteousness. He comes to make us righteous. And he does that by exposing all of the darkness, by shining his light in there, and by bringing hope and a future to us. And so as God begins to reveal those things, as he begins to expose what we've hidden, let's not run away from those moments, but let's embrace them. Another interesting thing there is that that God does not do that in a private moment with just Peter and Jesus, but he does it in front of the other disciples. The, The process of repentance and being brought to new life is an individual choice, but it's always intended to take place in the context of community. This is the reason we, in our first service this morning, we baptized a couple people. And the reason we do that publicly is they're making a public declaration of the new life they've found. Right? But it's not just their individual declaration. We're all joining them in that celebration of saying, yes, this is also the new life we found. And it gives us all the opportunity to hold each other accountable as we move forward in our walk with the Lord. See, Peter screwed up a lot. And as you read through the book of Acts, you'll find out he wasn't done messing up yet. Like he still had some mistakes ahead of him. But each time, if he would have ever been tempted to say, I don't know that this is real. I don't know that I should be here. He had the voice of his brothers, of those other disciples who sat on the lake shore that day with him and say, no, no, no. We heard it from Jesus. He said, you love him. Now follow him. You love him. Now feed his sheep. He gave you this job to do. He welcomed you back into the, the group. Now let's go serve him together. See, we need not only to let God do that deep work of forgiveness in us, but we need to invite others into that process to share with them what he's doing, to let them tell us their stories of his deep cleansing forgiveness and to share ours with them. And as we do that, we are all in the process of holding each other accountable and encouraging one another. Yes, the past might have been dark, but tomorrow is brighter because of Christ. See, the the story of Jesus, the story of Peter reminds us that our past can never keep us from God's future. Not because of who we are. Right? When, When you think about this, so God reveals, Jesus reveals to Peter, not only are you forgiven, but now you're going to lead the church. Now you're going to be responsible for others who are following me. This is a beautiful moment, and Peter has every reason to disqualify himself from it. He has every reason to say, no, 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 I can't do that. No, I can't follow. No, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. But Peter learns what you and I need to learn. That we cannot be so focused on what we've done that we lose sight of what we're supposed to be doing. We can't, who are we to come to God and say, I know you've forgiven me, but you can't call me to that. You can't ask me to do that. People know what I've done. They know who I was. They know the mistakes I made. You can't possibly expect me to do that. But here's the thing. When God reveals your future to you, he knows exactly who you are and he knows exactly what you've done. And he's giving it to you anyways, not because of you, but because of Jesus. And so this morning, what that means for us is that God's grace is abundant and available. It means that he's here not only to restore and renew you, but to reveal his new future for you. The more religious you are, the harder time you have understanding this idea. Right? Because we think, yes, everyone can be forgiven. But some people, they need to kind of live with the weight of their sin. 
Right? Like, yeah, sure, you're welcome into the family, but you're always going to be the black sheep. Yeah, come on, you can come and worship with us, but, but no, we're never going to trust you. Yeah, you can, you can come and, and, and serve with us here, serve with us there, but we're never going to believe that God actually speaks to you and has a plan for you. Right, religious people, we, we want to know that we've earned it, that we deserve it. The story of Peter and the story of the gospel, the story of you and me is you've never earned it, you'll never deserve it, and yet God gives it freely and abundantly. And so even when our sin has cut off a part of our life, right, there are times you, you've chased that down and it led to the divorce and the spouse is remarried, and now there is no hope of reconciliation there. You fought with the parent, you had the disagreement with the friend, and now they're dead and gone, and there's no hope of that ever being restored. Sometimes our sin does lead us to these moments, but even then, the message of the gospel is it's not over. God still has a future. He still has a plan. He still has a tomorrow where you're following him and sharing his life and his joy with others. So who are we to tell God that we don't deserve his future? Who are we to tell him that he's not strong enough to take us from where we are to where he wants us to be? My prayer for you this morning is that whatever condition your heart is in, however near or far you feel from Jesus today, that you will surrender to his power, that you'll receive his grace, that he will give you the faith to believe, even when you've messed up in spectacular fashion, that he will give you the faith to believe his forgiveness runs deeper His grace can restore you and he can reveal a brighter future for tomorrow. We stand with me. I want to pray for you. And then they're going to lead us in a final song. God, we come to you today acknowledging our sin and our weakness. And even as we we peer into the guilt and the shame to the the corners of our heart we've never told anyone about. We thank you that your grace is greater and your love runs deeper. Lord, I pray for those, especially this morning, who feel like they are beyond hope, that they have chased their sin too far, that its grip on their heart is too great. Lord, in in this moment, would your spirit come and remind them that resurrection is possible that new life is available, that they are not destined, they're not locked into this way of life. They're not slaves to these addictions or these behaviors, but there is freedom and a brighter tomorrow to be found in you. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and as we receive the forgiveness of Christ, may it be deep and complete. As we sit in the daylight with you, may you shine your light on our misdeeds done in the darkness. May you restore us and renew us and reveal your future path for us. Lord, help us to walk in boldness and confidence in the life you are calling us to. We lay down our excuses. We lay down the objections of others receive your grace and your mercy this morning. We thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us to bring complete freedom and total healing. 
So Lord, we receive that and we ask by the power of your spirit that you would help us to walk in it today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like someone to pray with you about specific needs in your life, maybe making that decision for the first time to follow Jesus or or maybe just you know some of that deep buried junk is kind of getting revealed this morning, let others join you in that process. As we sing, if you'll head out the back doors and to your left to the prayer room, some of our pastors and volunteers will be waiting to join you in those prayers. The rest of us, the band's going to lead us in a song they led us in earlier that just kind of declares the confidence with which we approach God's throne. That even though we're sinners, Christ has covered over it. And so now we joyfully run towards him. We joyfully embrace the path he has laid out before us. So let's sing it like we mean it. Let's sing it as a declaration of who Jesus is and what he's done and the new life he offers to us. And again, if you'd like someone to pray with you as we're singing, head out the doors to your left to the prayer room. They'll meet you back there. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.